O Lord, make, make us have perpetual love and reverence for your holy name, for you never fail to help and govern those whom you have set up the sure foundation of your loving kindness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I wanted to show you a picture. Uh, there we go. It's, my technology is going to work. So I've got a new uh, chalice for us. Been shopping for a new chalice for us for communion. It's got a it's got a broad rim on it where we can easily get to it. It's big and wide so that you can easily dip into it. It's got a place where you can easily hold your hand. And it's got a nice base that you can set on. But what if I said, and you've, you've, y'all have seen this picture, and it's easier to see and recognize this when it's in black and white. Get back up here. What if I said this actually picture, this picture is actually not a picture about the chalice. It's a picture about two people coming together over a cup. Can you see the nose? Is, noses, lips, chin, eyebrows, and forehead. Now, maybe you saw that immediately and figured where I was going. But the thing I think that this shows is we see something different depending upon what we believe about the picture. What we believe about the picture determines how we interpret the picture, if you will. Well, we do this through all of life, um, and not just uh, freaky double images, but, but we do this through all of life in everything we do. It's called a worldview. And we're going to talk about a worldview today. Um, what we believe about the world, about the things we see, it influences how we interpret those things. So today, we're going to see um, how Jesus' coming shatters your worldview. It shatters the human worldview. So first, we ought to discuss what is... A worldview. Now, the first, shortest definition I could find says beliefs dictate that interpretations of reality, beliefs dictate the interpretations of reality, resulting in a worldview. So your beliefs are going to determine your interpretations of reality. And that's what becomes your worldview. Now, I think of a worldview as a lens through which we see the world. And it's how we interpret reality. It's how we interpret what's around us. And this lens is formed in all of us over a long period of time. And through, through a whole series of things from where you grew up, the parents that raised you, how they raised you, um, the neighborhood you grew up in, uh, what you were taught, what was caught. You know, we talk about things being caught more than taught. Uh, the music you've listened to, the the books you've read, the school you attended, news, the media, TV, movies, social media, and your friends that you hung out with from the very beginning up until this very day. The, all these things impact your worldview and form and shape how we see and interpret the world. So the reality is, is we are not isolated and we're not in a vacuum. We're not just by ourselves. All these things have, inter- have helped influence how we see the rest of the world. Everyone has a worldview. It's, we're, nobody is isolated from this. And a, and a worldview is what a person believes 
is at that, that most fundamental state. It's, uh, it answers these big questions of life. Even if we are not exploring those, even if we haven't asked them, it's still what our worldview is, is determining those fundamental beliefs about the big questions of life, such as, who are we? Where do we come from? How do we get here? Where are we going? Are we going anywhere? Where are we going? If we got there, what would it look like? What about the afterlife? It determines all those things. Those are the big questions that your worldview is answering. And again, everybody has that, whether or not they've sat through, uh, ever been in church at all, whether they've been in classes of like uh, philosophy classes or not. So maybe we haven't explored those things, but we all have beliefs about those things. So a person, a person's lens to see the world has been has been influenced over time by all those different uh, influences, and because of that, the view that you're seeing with through your own lens could be blurred. It could be distorted. There could be things that are totally missed that you don't see at all. It's it's not it's not unlike your glasses. If your glasses wear, um, you'll. You, you can relate. As time goes by, it seems like sometimes you can't see. I'm, I'm, I was having one of those today, and I did look up, and there, the light is out over top of my uh, where I sit. So where I was having a little difficulty seeing, okay, I'm going to blame that on the light and not my eyes at this point. But your eyes will change. Your lenses need changed in order to keep up. So this is kind of the thing we're looking at. Um, this worldview, also, it will determine, like, your moral ethics. It, it's going to help... You understand that sense of right and wrong, how you uh, practice that as you go about your daily life. It's going it's to influence what you think about stealing, what, what you think about lying or cheating, what you think about uh, abortion, drug use and abuse, what you think about alcohol consumption, what you think about premarital sex, extramarital sex, same-sex relationships, public policy, education, how to raise children, and on and on and on. Your thoughts on all those things will be largely shaped by your underlying worldview. That's this fundamental lens through which you see the world. Now, each person has their own individual worldview, but we live in a society which uh, is greater than ourselves, and it will have multiple worldviews as well. The Christian worldview in America has been losing ground or losing dominance to competing worldviews over the last many years. One of those worldviews would be uh, pluralism, where uh, a pluralistic worldview considers that all religions are the same, and essentially they all teach the same thing after all. They teach you how to be a decent person, except that's not true according to a Christian worldview. That's not what we understand at all. What a Christian worldview says is that it's not about what you do to appease a angry God, but it's about what Jesus Christ has done in uh, in you to bring you to new life. It's about what's already done, and it's not about what you're doing. He brings you to new life, and through his, his death and resurrection, he has paid the debt for your sin, appeasing this holy God and making you right with him. Well, many hold to another worldview, which I think is rather predominant. Uh, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. We read about that in our uh, study we're doing on Wednesday nights. And this is a thought where God wants us ultimately to be happy. And he's distant. He's far off. That's the idea of deism. Now, he could come and help us if we would ask. He might stoop down and help us. 
But the idea that he's really concerned about your daily affairs, that's, that's really just not entering in there because the, this worldview says he's distant and far off. He's, he ultimately wants us to be happy. And, um, and, and we, so when we're not happy, when we are not feeling good, we go to him. And it's important that we're nice people and that we treat each other fairly. Now, I think that worldview is popular inside the visible church as well as outside the visible church. Um, and there are many other different types of worldviews. There are many categories for worldviews. I think those are the two that are most like competing in our own context here in the Mid-Ohio Valley. I think those are the most competing for our affections, for our, uh, our understanding, trying to shape and mold us into it. But once we understand what a worldview is, let's look at Jesus bringing a different worldview. So we're going we're gonna to jump in at verse 49. And he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So we know from Scripture that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We know that he came preaching the kingdom of God. We, we've talked about that earlier in Luke. We talked about that a lot, and that was the phrase. He came preaching the kingdom of God. This time, and this is, this is what Jesus does, the crowds are growing, and he like switches things up. So instead of saying he came to seek and save the lost or something kind and nice, he says, I come to cast fire upon the earth. Harsh words. His coming brings judgment upon those who are not willing to trade their own kingdom for his. It's a terrifying thought. There is also this future sense that he would like to, for it to have already been accomplished. That he, he, sees, he sees there's a beginning and there's something that's extended further out. And he's wishing that it were already accomplished. In verse 50 it says that, He has to go through a baptism of suffering, betrayal, separation from the Father, death and burial before it is accomplished. And there's an eagerness in him as he approaches um, toward Jerusalem in order to accomplish this plan of redemption. This comes as a kind of a surprise or, I don't know, maybe the whole thing's been building to it because Jesus has been talking about being prepared. That's what we talked about last week, was being prepared for him coming back for the return, for the final judgment. And now he's describing what this judgment's looking like. But there's this sense, too, in which now there's judgment coming as people have a different alignment of their worldviews or trading their kingdoms for his. Because those who follow Jesus then are going to be at odds with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's, what, that's how Paul talks about it. And the more they grow in him, the more they're going to feel like aliens here on this earth. So the next thing we see is a world, it's a worldview that divides. And this, I think this is just contrary. I think this lesson is one of those that's just an uncomfortable lesson because it's contrary to what we understand our faith to be. I mean, as, as Christians, I'm talking to you as Christians. I'm not talking to you as people out on the street. And I think this is a shocker to us. And I think the reason that is, is because we've bought into those competing worldviews more than we would like to believe. I think they've had great influence on us. I think, we think, Jesus wants us to be happy. Now, in our better days, we know the truth on that. But then when things are not going 
like they should, isn't it, woe is me? What about me, Jesus? Do you not care? Let's look at 51. A worldview that divides. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What happened to this Savior that was promised that was going to be bringing peace on earth? Have you ever felt this kind of division? From, from now on, from this point forward in a household, you're going to see division and not peace. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced a tension growing between those whom you love and yourself as you follow and walk with Jesus? Have you even realized that you are in a battle? One of the scary things here is to say, nope. Never realized any of this. Nope, cannot relate to what you're saying, Jesus. I don't understand the division. Everything is peachy in my life. It might help us then to realize, are we even in the battle? I think it's one of those things where if we are in him, we're promised this kind of thing. It's going to be this kind of spiritual battle that takes its shape through physical people. So... For basic truths, you know, we can depend on, like, the local uh, television report for the weather forecast. Uh, I, I have no, no real doubt about that. I mean, I, I really don't know how accurate our local weather report is from our local TV station, but you know what I mean. Um, those, those general basic truths, we have a place to go, and we, we can, you know, all go to that same source. When it comes to those ultimate questions, a Christian has a different source for the answers. And the spirit of the age encourages all sorts of authorities. And you can seek any of these uh, authorities, quote, quote, to find that truth that fits for you. It may be the media, it may be yourself, you may just dig deeper in whatever you feel, whatever you think. Maybe education, it may be the crowd. But the Christian often finds himself or herself at odds with the culture because of the different sources of authority. In fact, the Christian often collides with culture, and we should expect to collide with culture. And I think we should expect from this point forward to be colliding with culture more and more. Russell Moore from the Southern Baptist Convention was uh, at our Anglican's we, the Anglican Church in North America had a big gathering down in Texas, and he was a speaker there just this past week. He said, The gospel comes as a contradiction to all the ways we prop up our own kingdoms around us. In a time where Christianity is no longer useful, that is when it can be powerful for what it is, not as something that grows out of the culture, but as something in contradiction to the culture. Now, I just think that's pretty neat. Uh, and I think it's interesting that he's seeing this and recognizing this as well. Because we, this is is like a word for us in our context here in Parkersburg, because we're in cultural Christianity land. I think you ask virtually most anybody on the street and say, are you a Christian? I think many times you're going to get an answer of yes. Or do you know Jesus? I think that answer would be yes. Do you believe in God? More generic, I think that answer is yes. And then if you 
went a little further, you might understand this person thinks they're a Christian because their grandma was a Christian or their mother was a Christian or their father was a Christian. And so it's a kind of, a, and, it, and it becomes a checkbox thing. Well, okay, I'm not a, I'm not a Buddhist. I don't, I don't know what this one is, don't know what that one is. So I'm going to call myself, yes, Christian. There, was, there has been a long series of, uh, of time where it has been advantageous to be a Christian. That's, this is in that very brief uh, couple sentences of Russell Moore's, this is what he's talking about. That there was a time where it was advantageous to be a Christian. If you're a new businessman in town and you want to get more business for your insurance business or whatever it is, you go to a different church and you make contacts. And, and then when that's done and you've dried all those up, you might move on to the next church and so on and so on. Now, I'm not advocating that. I don't think that's the right way to go. It's just that's the way things have been. But we're in a time where more and more people are considering uh, that they belong to no religious affiliation and there is no shame in that. And as this continues, then, and we're in a, in a early stages, I think for us, is that uh, there's, there's going to be more and more persecution for your Christian beliefs. There, there is confrontation happening all the time, and it's coming more and more right into our doors in our churches. So in the midst of opposition, it's going to cost you. So no longer is it advantageous. You're new and setting your business up, and you're a, a real Christian, and you're not just looking for business contacts. And you start coming to a church, and you get involved, and you speak out, and you put things on your sign that relate to the Bible, you may be ostracized or shunned by General John Q. Public because of your beliefs. So this is what he's talking about, is how Christianity can become something like it's supposed to be. It can be something very powerful when it's coming out of this kind of setting, as opposed to the cultural Christianity setting. It's in contradiction to the culture. It doesn't look like the culture. George Orwell, uh, the 1984 guy, he, uh, he said, The more society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. I think that speaks to our time. I think as we continue to be grounded in the truth and we speak against some of the things that we see and some of the interpretations of society, we will be hated. But we can't be surprised by this. John 15, 18, and 19 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Are you ready to be hated by the world? This is why this is such an easy lesson. It makes you feel good all over. Are you ready to be hated by the world? Are you ready to experience division instead of peace? And some of you are peacemakers. You just love peace. You can't stand confrontation. What does this say to you? Are you ready for confrontation? And, and, you know, and you may say, I actually run toward confrontation. That is not true. I don't like confrontation. I can have a confrontational personality, and I recognize that. But I, I am, I'm grounded in these truths. Here's my hope, is that we're grounded in these truths and we won't bend over what we know to be true. The reason we're going to have that opposition is those who are not in Jesus are at, naturally opposed to him. That's the dark and light thing. The darkness is opposed to that light. Um, and as light comes into that darkness and starts shining around, it becomes a reflection. People see and recognize their own sins. So sometimes just your presence among certain people, can start a conflict, and, you, and there are no words spoken. 
I find that to be eerie. I think that's when I recognize we really are in a spiritual battle. But there's this light and dark thing going on, and there's confrontation already happened just because you are in the light and you've shown up. You showed up. So if you're going to be in Jesus and you're going to speak the truth, the world is simply going to hate you. This is what he's saying. In coming to Christ, there may not be peace on earth, but there will be peace in heaven. You will have peace with God, which is that peace that passes all understanding. So that even in the midst of trial and tribulation here on this earth, you can be at peace. But as you come to Christ and grow in him, you may find division from family, from friends, from places that you used to love being around, or from people that you used to love being around. And this is just a fact of, the, of, our, of our walk. So we need to be able to embrace some confrontation. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. That's John 14, 6. Now, people both inside the visible church and outside the church cringe when that's quoted. Um, we, I've, I've attended a church where pe- the pastor apologized, essentially, because it's misunderstood what that means. He called it proof texting. Except Jesus really means that no one comes to the Father but through him. And the, there are a few verses that are like peaks of icebergs that stick up out of the water. And so you don't like this one. It's setting on the rest of Scripture that is its foundation. All the Old Testament, all the New Testament point to this very thing. There is only one sacrifice. There is nothing but the blood of Jesus that can save us from the wrath of God. He has provided that way. Not He doesn't come. This is the beauty of of what we understand when we read the Word. And this is a contradiction to what we understand of the world, the spirit of the age. He doesn't say that you're okay to believe anything so long as you're sincere, spirit of the age. He doesn't say that you can do whatever you like as long as you are true to you, spirit of the age. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say find whatever truth works for you. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't believe all people are good. He doesn't say that. The spirit of the age tells us frequently, all people are good. That's not what he says. He didn't say that you could do whatever you want so long as you think it doesn't hurt anybody. A justification for sin from the spirit of the age that we hear frequently. No, not at all. He came and said that to follow him was on this way would be narrow and few would choose to do it. To follow him would require and does require an unusual obedience and a costly loyalty. The striking thing about this passage is that those who will oppose you may be those who you love the most. Now that's, when, I, when I'm in generic mode and say the world, you're like, whoop-de-doo. So the world hates me. Well, what if it comes into your own house? What if, it's, what if it's in your own family? What if it's in that best friend kind of growing up for last 30 years you were friends and now there's separation between you because of your faith? It becomes uncomfortable and it's predicted that this is going to happen. And now that this opposition, it may come as direct hostility, which we are experiencing more and more in our society, or it may come as this passive, like, quiet, ignoring you. So your, your relationship sort of dissolves over time. It just kind of goes away. It comes at a cost. 
And Jesus wants us to be aware of this. So when thinking through the more personal side, what will you do when you are faced with obeying Scripture versus compromising to maintain a relationship? Is it, is it, is it possible that you would have a relationship of one, with one who is close to you, who chooses to go another path? What would it look like for you to obey Scripture when you're tempted to comp- compromise in order to maintain the relationship? I think the only encouragement we have is to hold fast to what is true. To hold fast to the one who redeemed you. Hold fast to the one who redeemed your soul from the grip of Satan. Trust that he will be faithful to carry you when those whom you love abandon you and turn away. First Thessalonians says, and it's a benediction, but I think it's fitting for us. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it may you cling to him in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit